Again, we're looking at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in that text starting in, in verse 17. I, got a, uh, I have a good friend that many of you might have met or know. Uh, he sits in the back over here. His name is Dan Grenadier. Dan was born of Jewish descent, and recently, in about three, within about three months, uh, accepted Christ as his Savior. And um, I'm not putting him on the spot, but uh, he and I meet about once a week to discuss Scripture, a little discipleship meeting, and uh, it's a real opportunity for me to grow. And uh, I'm very thankful because Dan has questions, and he, a lot of times they start with Why? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And then if I can't give him a good reason from Scripture, then I have to ask myself, why? Well, Dan recently asked me about communion. And though he has a good understanding of the Passover feast because of his family heritage, uh, he doesn't fully understand communion yet. So not too long ago he asked me about the significance of it, who it was appropriate to partake in communion, and uh, what is this all about. So, um, I'm thankful, Dan, that reminded me uh, that church leaders can sometimes assume too much. Sometimes we assume that people uh, immediately know when they're born again all of these uh, ceremonies and traditions. So, uh, thank you, Dan. From the text that we have, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it's going to provide us great clarity on the Lord's Supper. And uh, it gives us a lot of insight. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us the most insight into the Lord's Supper, what it is, what it is not. Beyond this, we have very small snippets from the epistles and, of course, the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the Last Supper. Um, but 1 Corinthians gives more content and more explanation. Let me read to you uh, from Matthew, uh, Jesus' account, or the recording of Jesus. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's it. The Gospels do not go into very much detail about communion. The Gospel of Luke does record that in addition, Jesus did say on this occasion, do this in remembrance of me. So when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, it is his blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is not communion that we pour into a glass that gives forgiveness of sins. It was his blood that was poured out on the cross at Calvary, and Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We also learn today that the purpose of communion, the Lord's Supper, is a memorial. Your sins are not forgiven today as taking part of communion. It is a memorial of Christ's death on the cross. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified, that means made holy, 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It goes on to explain, every Old Testament priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. That was in the temple with the animals. And he says, these can never take away sins. It goes on. He says, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of that one-time sacrifice that Christ made for our sins. The reason 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is so exceedingly valuable is that it provides not only detail for appropriately administering the Lord's Supper, it also provides correction to some ungodly practices that were creeping in on communion. Corinth, who he's writing to, was a very immoral city. Uh, Within that city we find a very troubled church, the church of Corinth. And if there's a theme that you discover as you read through the book of Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians, it's disunity. Disharmony. They did not get along well. Uh, in chapter 1, it's revealed that there were many divisions within the church, and they were bragging about who they'd been baptized by. One said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. And they were separating themselves by who had actually baptized them with water. They were arguing about who had the greatest spiritual giftedness. Then they were suing one another in court. They were practicing adultery and prostitution. It is this local church that Paul wrote about the hand and the eye, whether one needed the other. He was giving this in symbolism of his body, his body of Christ. And they were so disconjointed they are so, so much out of harmony that he said, you need to come back and understand your one body. It's also 1 Corinthians where we find this famous exhortation to love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. He's encouraging the church to love. Corinth was a fractured congregation. There's nowhere it was more demonstrated than in the Holy Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. How fractured they were. Paul begins this passage that we're reading here with a rebuke. He writes in verse 17, you can follow along, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Paul says when they came together for church, their meeting was causing more harm than good. Instead of receiving common edification through Scripture reading and song and preaching of the word and prayer, they were increasingly becoming more divided. The church had broken into factions. This Greek term for factions is insightful. It means to select, to win over, even to seize. The root of the word uh, had a common usage in Greek 
literature for an election, considering to elect something. So they were trying to play politics. These folks were playing church politics. They wanted to win people to their faction and to their side. This is the only place in Scripture where this word is used. It's in a very negative context. They did this. They wanted these factions so they could get greater control over the body. They didn't appreciate, nor did they want to follow the leadership of the church. The differing sides wanted to create a faction so they could dominate. But in their whispering, in their lobbying, in their arguing, something remarkable was happening happening as orchestrated by God himself. The divisive behavior was not only revealing who these agitators were, it was also revealing who they weren't. Their behavior was becoming evident among itself. And he says, look amongst yourselves, these factions have come among you, it was necessary, he says, so that those who are approved among you would become evident. These factions existed now at this point so that God could show who is not causing division. People naturally sense when there's a problem, when there's division, when there's a he says, she says thing going on. And over time, people start to grow tired. And when enough time of this behavior passes, people don't only recognize who causes division, they recognize those who are striving for unity. This is what was beginning to happen in Corinth. They're right on the edge of seeing those who were working to reunify, those who were not talking, not causing trouble. Paul says, these are the ones you need to look to now for leadership going forward. You'll know a tree by its fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. So Paul's saying, look at their fruit. Does a person's behavior promote unity in the body or not? Paul implies, follow those who are approved by God. He continues then, look in verse 20. He says, therefore, because of the division, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another is drunk. Paul's stating a fact. The Corinthians were not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. They were coming to eat their own supper. They didn't care about the Lord's Supper. What they came together to do was to eat. In early Christendom, it was a common practice to to do what is known as, or hold what is known as an agape feast, a love feast. Hospitality was very important to this culture, and, and certainly when you'd invite someone to your home, uh, it would, that you would provide food. We find this in Acts chapter 2. It tells us from the very beginning of the church that the Christians were continuing daily with one another in accord in the temple and the breaking of bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and with sincerity of heart. Other than the Jewish temple, they didn't have dedicated facilities to assemble for church, so they went to people's homes where they would observe hospitality. So this is how this feast began to develop. It'd be typical at the end of the meal, after this agape love feast, to celebrate then the Lord's Supper. This isn't very different from what we see with 
the apostles and, and Jesus at the Passover feast. They had the feast, they partook in the feast, and then at the end, Jesus came and he instituted the Lord's Supper at the end of the feast. He broke the bread and distributed it. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that this love feast itself is not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a ceremonial remembrance that takes part at the end of this feast that they were gathering for. Uh, The feast is not essential to Christian doctrine. The Lord's Supper is. Instead, this feast had become a divisive distraction from the unity that was supposed to be demonstrated through the Lord's Supper. They didn't come for unity. They came for division. They were not concerned about the Lord's Supper. They are concerned about their supper. They are making sure they were gobbling it up first before anyone else could come around and see what they had and perhaps share in it. Obviously, they didn't have the punctuality we do now where we show up exactly at a certain time and if we don't leave at an exact time, then I get in trouble. But no, they would come together. They would walk. Someone would get off from work. There would be these different factions that were among them. Someone would be eating well. Someone would be eating early and partaking in communion early, eliminating others. Some would have nothing. Some would be drunk. Well, the church was shattered by class division. You had rich and poor. Paul's indictment in verse 22 is directed towards the wealthy. He says in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, he says. Paul says if you think that your purpose for coming together to church is to eat and to drink, that's your purpose. Just eat at home. You're not to arrive with a lavish banquet for yourself so you can shame others who don't have anything. You're despising, he says, and insulting the body of Christ when you do such things. Paul was right when, in verse 20, he said they did not come together for the Lord's Supper. They couldn't care care less about that. Um, They came to show off what they had. They came to entice probably other people who were influential into their faction. Come over here and eat with us. Look what we have. And there's others to the side who didn't have anything. So it was promoting things for the worse. This was getting worse and worse. The Lord's brother Jude wrote about this. Probably a different church, but this is not that uncommon, especially at this time. Listen to Jude as he describes these types of people. He says, They are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves. Later in verse 17, Jude reminds the church that the apostles had forewarned them about this happening. He states, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, Jude says, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude's striving for unity. 
Jude wanted them to shun division and embrace love. There are generally two personalities in the church. Ones that want to divide and ones that want to unify. Paul says in Corinth, if you're a person who has and you do not want to share the food that you have with those who do not have, you're free to do that. Do it at home. Don't act like you do here. In effect then, by doing this, Paul makes it very clear that this love feast, this meal beforehand, the agape meal, this portion of the church service is not essential for Christian doctrine. It is not an ordinance that we must practice. People will say, well, we don't do communion like they used to. Communion used to be an entire meal. No, the love feast was separate. It was not. Communion was not the entire meal. Communion, the Lord's Supper, was at the end of this meal. Paul says, if you're not going to practice it right, you don't even have to have that. Not essential to the Christian faith. I personally believe, actually, that because of this, on the very next Sunday, that the Apostle Paul instituted what would be known as the very first potluck dinner. He said, in response to Corinth, he said, now we're all going to have a potluck dinner and everyone's going to bring the best they have and partake equally. So I think we can probably thank the Corinthians for the potluck dinner. Moving forward in verse 23, we have a contrast to this, what I would call, optional love feast. Paul now presents that which is essential. Observing the Lord's Supper is a non-negotiable. We must do it. It is commanded by our Lord. In verse 23 it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it, or as often as you will, in the remembrance of of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul had received, we see in verse 23, the instruction concerning the Lord's Supper as direct revelation supernaturally from the Lord. Uh, Paul didn't read about the Lord's Supper in a gospel and then adapt it to what he thought uh, it should be or how it should be applied. Uh, in actuality, 1 Corinthians is a very early letter in the history of the church. Uh, the Gospels were not, in all likelihood, written yet. God had provided this information directly to Paul to instruct Corinth before the Gospels had been penned. So, uh, here he's giving them instruction that uh, no one had had yet uh, on correction. He had told them orally. He had told the churches verbally how to do this, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And like sinners typically do, they distorted it. They distorted something that was meant to be holy, was meant to be unifying, and used it for division. A few distinct things that we can observe from this text is that the Lord's Supper is for the purpose of remembrance. That's very clear. This, this word for remember is, is actually memorial. It would have been very common for the first century Gentiles to look at this word and think memorial and remember, uh, acknowledge that everybody had this type of memorial after their death. The memorial meal was very common in this culture in the early church 
there'd be a memorial meal to remember people after they had died. What makes this memorial meal very special and very unique and very different from any other memorial meal is this one is perpetual. It goes on and on and on and on until he comes again. Jesus was not like the other memorials who you put him in the ground and that is the one-time deal. Jesus is coming back. Jesus was raised and he is coming back. Uh, Also with this, it's obvious that the gospel and the resurrection are inherent in this text. You can't get around it. If he's coming again, that means he was raised. It says that he he died in this text. So he died, he's coming again. The resurrection, the gospel, his brokenness for our sins through his own body, the gospel is present in this text. Every time then it says, this is the reason it says, every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Every time we celebrate communion together, we're celebrating and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. We ought to love celebrating the Lord's Supper. The gospel goes forth. The good news of Jesus Christ goes forth when we practice it, when we observe it. The frequency is also stated here as as oft as you will. It's really up to your choice. How often are you going to uh, celebrate it, practice it? Some churches practice it every week, some monthly, some quarterly. Uh, There's no legalistic prescription to how often you have to practice it. Um, I don't think, we do it on the first of the month, I don't think 12 times a year is burdensome to remember the Lord's death for our sins and to proclaim the gospel. Um, Paul does say, however, uh, not that there's a prescription to how often, but there is a prescription to how. How it is observed. He says in verse 27, Therefore whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Essentially, if you take part in this holy ceremony, in an unworthy manner, you have, you have disregarded the Lord's body and blood, just like the people who crucified him and killed him. You have disregarded him, and you are guilty of his blood, just like all others who have disregarded his body and his blood. So a lot of people want a definition of exactly what this unworthy manner is. They want to know, I don't want to do that. I know I don't want to do that. That's a bad thing here. So what is an unworthy manner? Some churches legislate this and decide for themselves. Maybe a person isn't dressed well enough to come into the church and do the Lord's Supper. Uh, Perhaps you haven't come often enough. Maybe you aren't respectable enough. Some churches will do that. Not often, but it happens. They legislate what is unworthy themselves. But the implied definition of unworthy manner is inherent in the context. Consider for a moment to yourselves, think about this, what were some of the conditions of an unworthy manner by which the Corinthians were observing this? Yeah. What were they doing? They were diplomatically factious towards the body of Christ. So if you have divisiveness or or resentment towards the body of Christ, towards others, towards the unity, 
you should maybe not partake in communion. Uh, what else? We have, uh, they were dismissive. They were careless. They, were, they weren't really thinking about what they were doing. They are there to eat, so they were, uh, gave disregard towards the Lord's body and towards his blood. They didn't really care whether there was supposed to be any solemn reflection on sin or why Christ had to go there. It didn't really matter to them. So they were indifferent towards the Lord's Supper. That would be an unworthy manner of taking part. Um, also, exclusiveness. They had their little clubs where they were keeping other people out. We're going to do this over here with our food, and you all kind of scram. If you, don't, if you aren't like us, if you don't believe like we do, if you aren't part of our faction, then don't sit with us. So they had disregard and disunity towards the body of Christ. There's a few manners in which it could be unworthy. A number of these were obvious outward behaviors, and uh, they've been remedied by the church. Since a love feast is optional, we don't practice it. We don't do that here. We will have a fellowship dinner after at some point, but it is not a part of the service. It was an optional practice. And by standardization, everyone gets the same elements. Pierre or Gerald doesn't get a larger cracker than anyone else. We all share equally. Everyone gets to partake equally. One person doesn't get more than the other. There are other obvious outward behaviors that could uh, affect this. By comparison, today, however, mostly it's inward behaviors. Issues of the heart, sins of the heart that we have to observe here before looking at whether or not we are taking this ceremony, this, this sacred celebration of Christ's death on our behalf uh, in a worthy manner. Uh, we have to look at our heart. We need to examine ourselves. What is our heart? How do we feel towards the body? How do we love Whose job is it? Let me ask this. Whose job is it to examine you and decide whether or not you are worthy? Uh, let's let God's word answer this. Verse 28. If you look in your Bibles. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread or to drink of the cup. Only God knows your heart. Only you know your heart. I don't know your heart. I can't tell you from the inward sinful thoughts and urges you have whether or not you are ready to partake in communion, ready to partake in the Lord's Supper. You are to search and examine yourselves. And then if you feel comfortable that you have confessed, repented, and love others, you decide whether you're going to partake. Now there's a potential situation, and this is where I want you to remember back to the scripture I read earlier, talking about the immorality that was going on in Corinth. There's, could there be a situation within a church concerning that text I read earlier where he said, do not even eat with such a person, the revilers, the drunkards, all of those, outward expressions of sin. I'm not talking about heart issues now. Back to outward expressions. Could there be a situation 
where there would be someone practicing a habitual, outward, immoral act that could be a threat to the body of Christ. Is it possible? They were doing it here. It is possible that through their suing one another, through their factious behavior, through their not sharing with one another, that there could be outward acts where a person would be inviting others into their alternative lifestyle, doing things that are not biblical, where they would not be worthy to partake. What do we do in that situation? The text I read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we don't even eat with such a person, it says. Do not eat with him. If someone's obvious outward behavior uh, provides a threat to luring others into sin, especially our children, our young people, those who are easy, easily influenced, new believers, uh, then the leaders of the church will investigate and uh, we will decide whether or not that person should, go, uh, should be observed for church discipline and reviewed on it. Thankfully, that does not happen much today. That's not common. It does happen. Churches do suspend privileges to others to partake in the Lord's Supper or to influence others depending upon their behavior. Some churches would have considered this excommunication. You're no longer allowed to take part in communion. That would have been the old uh, way, word that we would recognize. Uh, we call it church discipline. Uh, and that would be partake through Matthew 18. And uh, not needed, it, it is not needed to be done very often, praise the Lord. Um, but there are hidden sins of the heart that are to be self-examined. You are to confess them before taking part in the meal. And there's a stern warning in verse 29. It says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. A number are asleep, means they died. He says, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Because people failed to judge their own bodies, their own sinful flesh, rightly, because they failed to judge their body God said, I'll judge your body. And some of them, this was so bad. When you have people showing up drunk to the Lord's Supper, that's obvious, outward, sinful behavior. God judged their bodies. Some of them were falling ill. Some had died because of their sins against the body and unity of Jesus Christ. So he says, if you judge yourself rightly, then you won't be judged. But, unfortunately, Corinth, you have not been doing that some of you now are sick and uh, even died. They could have avoided God's chastisement by simply repenting, changing, before they observed the Lord's Supper and taking part. By the way, there's a caveat here I need to go into. If you feel that you might be physically ill because of sins against the body, there is a remedy for that. If you think, if God has convicted you in examining your heart that you are ill, you're sick, because of sins against the body of Christ, James offers a remedy to that. When we look in James, he's talk, he is in context talking about sins against Christ's body that have resulted in illness. James chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, follow, just follow along, you can look at it later. He's discussing God's judgment in James chapter 5. He says in verse 9, 
Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves will not be judged. Behold, he says, the judge is standing at the door. Stop sinning against one another. Again, sins against the body. He says then in verse 12, Just let your yes be yes, and let your no be no, so that you will not fall under judgment. Again, work honestly with one another. The entire context of James chapter 5 is about sins against one another. When you look at, at the book, James, probably the first epistle written in Scripture, around 50 AD. When you look and you read through this book, he's dealing with a lot of situations, a lot like Corinth. They had people that uh, would come in with gold fingers and fancy apparel, and they'd sit them in the chief seats as other people, the people who were poor, would sit at my footstool. Sit in a place where, you know, don't sit too close to me. They had division in the body as well. Uh, Then remember the famous lines about the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. See what what a forest a little fire will kindle. They were using their words against one another. They were speaking against one another. Even in uh, chapter 4 it says, What's the source of your quarrels and conflicts against one another? He said, You're speaking against one another. So there was all, early church, about five years probably before Corinthians was written, 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with the similar things. And he prescribes a resolution. He prescribes, excuse me, a remedy. He says in verse 14 of chapter 5, Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Why call the elders? Because the sick person is convicted in their heart that their illness is caused by their being factious with the body, by their sins against the body of Christ. They've been convicted, so what do they do? They call for the elders. I need to be restored. I need to be restored to the body, to love, to unity. My sickness is causing me to be ill, so they call for the elders. The pastor or elder represents the church. They go there to restore that person. Why do they use oil? That's something that comes up quite a bit. hear it on the radio, uh, TV. Why do they use oil? Do you remember what oil was representative of in the Old Testament? Holy Spirit. It identified people, didn't it? The priests were identified with oil. They were anointed with oil as they were identified as God's chosen priests. They were identified with oil. What about the kings? Do we remember King Saul? King David? The kings were anointed as oil, with oil, to identify who they were. They are identified as the one that is chosen of God. They are identified with. So oil is a way of identifying with something. So as the elders would go to this sick person, they would repent. They would anoint them to identify them and say, you are again with us. You are no longer separate. You are one. You are identified as a Christian in our church in fellowship. It is restoring to fellowship. James continues to provide even more clarity. Listen to this. He says, Therefore, 
Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And he goes on, the effective prayer of a righteous man cannot accomplish much. Once you have purged yourself, you've restored your heart and your righteousness before God, once you've restored, been restored to your church, that can accomplish much. Uh, James wraps it all up in verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and another turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the way of his error will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what happened is the elders went and intervened in that person's life. Saved them from death because the sins that were committed against the body. The, the passage in James prescribes the remedy of a person who's sick because of those things. Uh, God judges us as children. Those who know him, he chastens us so that we will not continue to stray further and further and further from him. He wants us to be restored. In contrast, the worldly unbeliever is judged and condemned with finality. God's children don't incur that judgment. In verse 32 it says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So the question arises, why don't we see a lot of this anointing slash restoration today? I think I have a good answer. I'll give you what I think is the primary reason why we don't see more of this. And our church would do this. If you feel that you're sick, if God's convicted your heart that I'm sick because I've sinned against the body, we would gladly restore you uh, if you repent. I think the reason that we don't see a lot of this today in the church is because the pastoral oversight is so much better equipped. The pastors in the church are so much better equipped than what Corinth was. The pastors in Corinth didn't even have this letter. They didn't have the totality of Scripture and the Gospels and all of these items with which to discipline, to administer, to correct, and to guide and say, God's Word says you don't sue your Christian brother. God's Word says you don't practice that type of immorality. You don't come to communion drunk. Now we have all of these letters. We have the totality of Scripture. So the pastoral oversight of the churches today intervene before God has to. That's why I don't think we see more people in a, in a Bible-believing fellowship that are falling ill because of that, because we just don't see this type of stuff practiced. These open uh, sins against the body. We, we don't see a lot of it. There are sins of the heart. But it's not openly practiced so that the youth or the others can be led astray by this. Um, what is it Jesus said? He goes, uh, if anyone were to cause one of these little ones, especially our youth, to stumble, it would be better than a millstone be hung around his neck. It's very serious when you start influencing the body and you become an unholy leaven. Remember from that text we read earlier. Finally, Paul's exhortation concerning the Lord's Supper is an appeal for complete and absolute unity. In verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that he will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters, he says, I will arrange when I come. 
I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward now so we can partake in the Lord's Supper. It's designed to be inclusive. You wait for one another. You share with one another. That's not what Corinth was practicing. They were divisive. They were factious. This passage is one of the reasons that we practice open communion at our church, is that we want to include Christians, include you if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you are born again in Jesus Christ, if you know that you're a sinner separated from God and need the blood of Jesus Christ to cover you, to be saved, we invite you to join us in partaking in the Lord's Supper. But we also advise you to examine yourself. Where are you at spiritually? What is your heart? And are you in harmony with the local body of Christ? Are you in harmony at all with the body of Christ? Do you have sin that needs to be confessed? Do you have something in your heart? This is the reason that we provide an opportunity and a period of reflection as the elements are being distributed. If you're not sure, perhaps you want to let it pass by. There's no shame in that. Think about Christ. Think about how you need to be restored, about your sin, and our need for a Savior. But examine yourself.